the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Thanks for listening to the Town Hall Review with Hugh Hewitt podcast, bringing to you the best voices on the stories and issues that matter. Helping make it all possible is the generous partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. Here's a piece yours truly hosted that I trust you will enjoy. On the No Collusion, No Obstruction Day, there is no better guest than Evan Thomas. He spent 33 years at Time and Newsweek, including 10 years at the Washington Bureau Chief at Newsweek. He's written some amazing books, some wonderful books, including being Nixon. His brand new book, First, Sandra Day O'Connor, I'm going to come to in just a moment because it's so wonderful. I'll tell you why that is the case. But Evan, good morning. Welcome back to the program. Hi, you. Good to hear from you. Great to speak with you. I, I just wanted to ask you, given that uh, it's leaked to Politico that I'm going to become the president and CEO of the Nixon Foundation, and you're the author of Being Nixon, how happy do you think Nixon would have been to receive a no collusion, no obstruction memo from uh, 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 Leon Jaworski or Archibald Cox? <laughs> I think Nixon is sitting up there in heaven or wherever he is chuckling about all this. Well, uh, you know, he would have been... He, 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 you know, Nixon, I think, got a somewhat of a raw deal. Uh, you know, I know that's a counter-conventional wisdom. Uh, I was just reading today at uh, The New Yorker this morning that, uh, well, the answer to what does he know and when, when did he know it about Nixon was just about everything. That's not true. It isn't true. And being Nixon does, being Nixon brings that out. That's why I recommend the book to everyone. Evan, uh, I do want to talk to you about first. This is going to be the first of two interviews because I've decided it only makes sense to break it until she got to the court and then when she was on the court. First, my my congratulations. This is a remarkable read. I I have proof. Uh, I love some books a lot, and my wife loves some books a lot, but rarely does the fetching Mrs. Hewitt and I like the same book at the same time a lot, and we're like reading it to each other because there's so much great reporting in here. Thank you. That's high high praise, and I'm grateful for it. She is remarkable. She is a freedom woman, first and foremost. What I learned the most about her is that she is so Western, it, it doesn't even... I had no idea what growing up on the Lazy Bee Ranch was like for her. None. I don't think anyone's really uh, in, internalized that. Well, if you learn how to shoot a rifle before you're 10 and drive a truck before you're 10, and you know that if the rains don't come, the cows are going to die, and that you have to just deal with it. That's, that's, that's a real education that most Americans just don't get. Well, the and Chuck Wagon her, story will never leave my mind. Tell people about that. Sure. She's a 15-year-old girl, and her job is to get lunch out to the Roundup, which is miles, way the hell out on the prairie. So she drives out there, and she has a flat tire. She's, you know, she has to jump on the jack to change the tire. She's late when she gets there. And her father, her tough father, runs the ranch, looks up at her and says, you're late. And she says, well, I had a flat tire. And he looks at her and he says, 
Next time, I'll leave earlier. Yeah, Evan, that was so. That was such her father. Moreover, she made the lunch. She got up before dawn to make the lunch and then put it in the chuck wagon. I just there's so many anecdotes like that. But of course, what absorbed me? My boss, William French Smith. My other boss, Fred Fieldinger, in this book, Carolyn Cool, Ken Starr. I mean, everybody that I knew when I got there in '83, Ed Meese, Ken Crib. They're all in here making this decision. I don't think I've ever read an account of the selection of a nominee more complete and thorough than this one? Well, I hope so. Uh, I had uh, a lot of access. One thing, I had her husband's diary, uh, her contemporaneous diary, John O'Connor's diary, which you don't normally get, and Ken Starr, who was leading the uh, leading the search, who was William French Smith's special assistant then, famous in later years for other things, but at the time, uh, an ambitious young lawyer, a very good young lawyer, he uh, he helped me a lot on this. And so I had all the internal documents, uh, and I had help from, from people in the White House. So I, I, I knew the story, and the story is fascinating on a number of levels. One is people will wonder, well, how did this intermediate state court of appeals judge, right, who, you know, were just not really qualified on paper get the job? Well, a couple of things. One is... Reagan was serious about putting a woman on. At, at the time, the people at the Justice Department thought he would. He wasn't really serious. He promised that in the campaign, but it's just politics. You know, we'll appoint Bob Bork, their candidate, conservative Bob Bork. But no, Reagan was serious. James A. Baker told me that's partly because Nancy Reagan was serious about this. Uh, so they're serious. But the other thing was there just weren't any Republican women judges. That's in right. 1980. That's right. But, but, but law was a closed shop for men. Law firms were all male. Out of 600 federal judges, there are only eight women, and they're all Democrats. In fact, I want to read from page 84 about how first Sandra Day O'Connor was. I'm talking with Evan Thomas. His new, brand-new book is called First, Sandra Day O'Connor. You sum it up on page 84. The reality of a woman in government leadership role in 1973 was so unexpected it barely registered. This is when she became the leader of the state Senate in Arizona. O'Connor was not just first. She was far ahead of the pack. It would be over eight years before O'Connor herself became the first female U.S. Supreme Court justice. Then three years after that, before Geraldine Ferraro was picked as the first female vice presidential nominee. And then almost another decade before Janet Reno became the first first female U.S. Attorney General, and four more years after that, before Madeleine Albright was named the first female U.S. Secretary of State. It really hadn't occurred to me how first Sandra Day O'Connor is. Well, you know, it's it's now, I mean, I'm, I'm not saying that America is totally equal and gender rights are completely equal and all that. Obviously, there's more, more work to be done. But compared to 1980 or 1970, we live in a completely different universe. We forget Men really, really ran the show, and particularly in things like the law. You know, in, in a law firm, they wouldn't even when, – when Sandra Day O'Connor graduated from Stanford Law School, very high in her class, maybe second only to Bill Rehnquist, her classmate, she could not get a job not, – not just get a job, get a job interview at any law firm – in the West Coast. She kind of stuck at uh, Bill Smith when, because <laughs> Gibson Dunn offered her to be a legal secretary. Got, she kind of brought that around in the Oval. I like that. She sure did. The uh, William French Smith was a partner at Gibson Dunn, the law firm that offered that interviewed her about her typing skills in 1952. Well, flash forward 20-some years, 30 years, uh, it's 1981, and William French Smith, the Attorney General of the United States, former Gibson Dunn partner, is calling one Sandra Day O'Connor to get her to come to Washington to be interviewed for the U.S. Supreme Court. Yeah, it's ironic. So he gets, 
he gets uh, he gets O'Connor on the phone and she says to him, "You wouldn't be calling me about secretarial work." Now, <laughs> now I got to say, some of the details people will discover. Bill Rehnquist is working the phones. He's on the court. Nixon appointee Warren Berger is lobbying for Sandra Day O'Connor. He'd been entertained, very entertaining. Uh, con- yeah, getting John O'Connor's diaries is a real windfall because, well, first let me just say this: Betsy and I both think. John O'Connor is one of the most remarkable men we've never heard of and now we're reading about. He must have been a, a, a gem. Well, think about it. I mean, he's a big, he's a very traditional male, right? He's, he's a big man in Phoenix. He's the head of his law firm. And that, in those days, that was, you know, he was the power guy in Phoenix. And yet, he is completely supportive of his wife. When she, every step of the way, he, he's always working behind the scenes to advance her. So he has a giant... And fairly typical male ego. He, you know, he goes to Bohemian Grove. He's a big club man. He's a big country club man. And yet, at the same time, he's totally supportive of his wife. It's a great love story and a great marriage. And it's a very moving one because he gets Alzheimer's. And she has to care for him. And she ends up leaving the Supreme Court at the height of her power to take care of him. And what a love story. That's one of the reasons I'm sure men and women both are finding first to be such an amazing read. Now, i got to tell you um, two more things before we run out of time on part one. Back to her days on the court. I don't think I'm ever going to forget either her sentencing of the young mother who had been left in, by a professional athlete to fend for herself and had done so by kiting checks, written a lot of hot checks, maybe a hundred grand. And she's got two infants. And Sandra Day O'Connor is the trial judge, and she throws the book at her, five to ten years, then she goes off and weeps. But, boy, does that tell you about her character. It, it does. I mean, as a woman is being taken from the courtroom, the defense, she's saying, oh, how about my babies? What about my baby? And yet Sandra Day O'Connor says, you know, you are a privileged person. You come from a good family. Uh, you were married to, you know, a pro football player, and you're kiting checks. You know, I'm sorry, but you're going away. And then she goes to her chambers and she weeps. It's quite a story. Now, I've got to get in because next time you're back, we'll talk about on the court. But before she went to the court, Roe v. Wade had come down in 1973. And you write, by the way, probably better about this than any non-lawyer I've seen. In an epic miscalculation of the mood of American politics, the majority of justices in Roe seemed to believe they were merely putting the court's imprimatur on a social liberalization whose time had come. Almost immediately, a backlash erupted from the new Christian right. Various GOP-controlled state legislatures began passing laws seeking to overturn Roe v. Wade, testing whether they could limit a woman's choice. John Rose and Ken Starr were tricked. I mean, I, I think your evidence is conclusive. She didn't forget anything, including that first ab- vote on abortion. She knew what she was, but nobody asked her the questions. And so when the time came in Casey versus Planned Parenthood and in other decisions, she did not pull the rug out on Roe. She didn't. She, she said, well, even though personally she didn't like abortion, she didn't want to take a woman's right to choose, and she was willing to limit abortion, and she did. I mean, her rule, they got away from Roe v. Wade, the underlying rationale, and, and put in a new system, which was her system called undue burden. The state cannot put an undue burden on a woman's right to abortion. So she's giving, you know, she is giving the state some control over abortion, but at the same time, she's preserving a woman's right. That's very what, Sandra O'Connor. Evan, what O'Connor. you did so well is she didn't lie to anyone. 
She, it's just Republican presidents, whether it's David Souter, I hope it's not Brett Kavanaugh, I know it's not John Roberts. They don't know how to do this because they yeah, got tricked. <laughs> That's true. She is a pretty cagey. Sandra Day O'Connor understood power, and she knew how to use it. And she'd been, yeah, she's the last, she was the last Supreme Court justice who actually asked for a vote, who'd been in the real world of politics. You know, we miss that now. We have all these uh, very smart Court of Appeals judges on the court. But Sandra Day O'Connor had been in the real world of politics. She knew how to play politics. And I, I mean that in a, mostly in a good sense, but in a very real world, real politics sense. And she was damned if she was going to tell Ronald Reagan what she was really going to do about abortion. Amen. And, I, and, and that's why people have to look harder and think longer about this. But I got to say, she is such a remarkable story. And uh, you've told it Thank so you, well, you. Evan. I saw my daughter-in-law on Saturday night, Evan, and I said, you've got to read first. And she is a very exceptional corporate executive. I told my daughter, who's an amazing, but you got to read first. I told everyone, I'm, like, I'm out there selling first on the corners. And you can't change it because it's already gone through edit. I have a column about it in the Washington Post. It's already been through edit. But I want to begin so that people understand with your sources, with these numbers. You interviewed 94 of Justice Sandra Day O'Connor's 108 clerks. She served for 25 years on the Supreme Court. She gave you access to her papers. Uh, she gave you her personal journal of her early years on the court. And you got John O'Connor, her late husband's daily diary. I don't think anyone, and you got all the justices to talk to, I don't think any Supreme Court book has ever been this well-sourced. Do you, don't, don't be shy. Am I right about that? I, I think so. I mean, you know... Uh, actually, there was a biography of Brennan that was really well sourced to be to get down into the weeds here. But 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 the point is, the family and I think she understood that to do this right, you have to tell the whole story. The Supreme Court's a funny institution because on the one hand, you know it's public; they look, they print their opinions. But on the other hand, it's pretty secretive and private, and there's a lot that goes on behind the scenes, and we often don't really know what they're personally like. What what you know we we. We study their doctrines, but what are they really like, and, and what really moves them? And there are endless debates about this, but you can't do it unless you have that kind of access. Well, I just, Andrew, the clerk, who is the uh, Holy Cross pugnacious guy, McBride, I don't know yeah. him. I'm going to meet him. I'm going to find him and sit down with him, because one of the art uh, uh, artistic values of first is that you have a lot of mini portraits in here. Clarence Thomas, great portrait of Clarence Thomas, great portrait of Nino Scalia, great portrait of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Uh, you kind I don't know how you got this into as few pages as you did, even though it's a 400-page book. Well, uh, by avoiding being boring, uh, you know, the good, good problem with judicial biographies, as one of my critics said, is that they're a march of cases of one case after another, and every case is important and all that, but it's boring. And so I, I, I really worked at making it more lively. I used to write for news magazines, and we were writing for mass audiences, and we, you know, without distorting the truth and without being reductionist or dumbing down, because I don't think this is a dumbed-down book, I cut out the extraneous stuff and went to the, tried to get to the heart of the matter by not doing a kind of slow march of the cases. You did not dumb it down. I've been teaching con law for 24 years, and I, I told the folks at the Post, I don't, I don't know if it made it to the final edit, that a layman will read this, as my wife did. She finished it before I did, and she's not a lawyer. And they will understand the complexities of some of these agonizingly difficult cases. I mean, Casey is not easy to understand following Roe. The uh, Bollinger, who taught me media law at Michigan cases, are not easy to understand, both the undergraduate and the law school cases. You did a fine job. Did you have a lawyer helping you do this? 
Uh, my wife. Okay, that, <laughs> there you go. Uh, and also, in my defense, I, I graduated from law school. I'm not a real lawyer. Oh, I didn't know that, Evan. I did, I did. I graduated from the University of Virginia Law School, and I had a great con law professor named Jay Harvey Wilkins. Well, of course you had Jay Harvey. Oh, my gosh. He, he taught me constitutional law. The only thing I remember from law school, but I do remember that. That is, then you will, of course, be well prepared. Now, Jay Harvey Wilkins is the uh, longest-serving circuit court judge in the United States. I want him to take senior status because I want them all to take senior status. But let's go back to first, Sandra Day O'Connor, and why I want people to read this. This is the second of three interviews I'm doing with Evan Thomas, the author of First. Uh, first, we our first interview focused on Justice O'Connor's early life. This I want to focus on her early years on the court. She served from 1981 to 2006, and she changes, and you're quite honest about that, Evan. She goes from right to left, and what I love about this book is that I grew in admiration for the justice, and I grew to dislike her jurisprudence even more. As I read it first, <laughs> that's an unusual result, isn't it? Yes, yes. I, I understand what you're saying, though. I do. Uh, you know, she was a pragmatist, and uh, they, don't, they don't love her in the federal society, and probably you don't either. Nope. She, she does not she doesn't like rules. She doesn't like doctrines. She was very much a case-by-case person, and she became more that way as she was on the court. Now, liberals like that because that pushed her to the left, but of course, conservatives feel somewhat of a sense of betrayal because when she gets on the court, she's, she is a federalist. You know, she's with Rehnquist. She's, she's trying to stop the federal government from taking over every state power. Uh, you know, she, she's part of that resistance. Because it's really what the Warren Court has been doing. You know, Evan, my first summer as a law associate at Baker and Botts, I spent all summer on an amicus brief in Mississippi v. FERC, a lot of which founded into her dissent in Mississippi v. FERC. And so I thought when she started that she was going to be, and she did remain a champion of states' rights, except on matters of abortion and affirmative action, she became the go-to Federalist person. And so she is a genuine Federal Society judge when it comes to Federalism. She is, and, and she, as uh, you mentioned, the FERC case, she had a great line in there about uh, uh, the states are not laboratories for the federal, for federal bureaucrats. I mean, she wanted to get the, you know, the federal bureaucrats off the states, telling them what to do. This is in a, a narrow uh, regulatory case, but it, the broader principle was important. If you're ever you bored, know, Evan, go back and find the Baker and Botts, Hugh Hewitt, amicus brief. I think I wrote that line. I think I wrote that line. I think did the, you? Yes, I really oh do. I really do think oh I wrote that. God, that's so so I, interesting. That's, that's why so I love this book so much. I got, well, I've got it somewhere. They they actually History put they, they put they, they put my name on the brief, which broke the Supreme Court rules, and I think Gordon Gucci was in charge, may have known he did that, but but it was nevertheless very satisfactory. I didn't go with Baker and Botts anyway, but I didn't know they were doing that. It was kind of a surprise. Uh, well, you were making history there. Uh, well, that, was, that was one of her rare moments of rhetorical uh, flourish, and it turns out it wasn't even her. It was Hugh Hewitt. Well, I think, I think she just read her briefs very closely. She also, though, went on, and let's talk about these two areas of the law, early and late. Next time we'll come back. Abortion and affirmative action are the two defining controversies of her 25 years on the court. Would you describe the early arc of her decision-making on both of those cases? Well, when she gets on the court, uh, uh, Harry Blackman, who wrote Roe v. Wade, thinks that she's going to be a vote to overturn it. That she, that she, and she is skeptical. She said in her confirmation hearings that she found abortion to be personally abhorrent. And she gets right up to the edge of joining Wizard White uh, as a as a saying that life begins at conception, but she doesn't get all the way there. And as a result, 
she is not the threat to abortion rights that she initially seemed to be. And as time goes on, you know, Justice O'Connor did not read the opinion polls, but she was perfectly aware that about a third of the country is against abortion no matter what, about a third is for abortion no matter what, and about a third are in the middle. And in the middle is about where she was. I don't think that's entirely a coincidence. You know, I think she was trying to reflect the public mood on this, that she wasn't really she wasn't willing to, to do away with abortion rights altogether. She was willing to limit them, yes. And she her her standard became the standard, which is the states can restrict abortion, but they cannot put what she called an undue burden. Now, it, it, she and Justice Kennedy and Justice Souter agreed in the Casey uh, joint opinion on the new standard. But then she and Kennedy broke subsequent on that on the late term abortion cases. And they Kennedy did. was quite angry about that, if I read his opinions correctly. Yeah. Do you agree with uh, me about uh, that? Yes, I do. I do. I, I think that that was a temporary alliance between Kennedy and and uh, I think it was a brilliant piece of human. You know, we were talking earlier about how important the human dynamic here is. And here's, a, I think, a classic case. When Kennedy first comes on the court, he's very close to Scalia. In fact, they sort of mockingly talked about it being little meanie. Uh, and, but I think that, that this Justice Scalia made the mistake of patronizing Kennedy a little bit. Justice Scalia sometimes needed to be the smartest guy in the room. And uh, Justice O'Connor was more respectful to Kennedy. And so even though look, like Kennedy was a sure vote against abortion in conference, he compared Roe v. Wade to Dred Scott. Yes. You know, he, it looks like he is a sure vote. So Rehnquist thinks he's got five votes to basically gut Roe v. Wade. That doesn't happen. Why? Because I think Justice O'Connor brilliantly cultivated Justice Kennedy by being somewhat more respectful of him than Justice Scalia was. This is a very subtle thing. I can't prove it, but I spent a lot of time working on it. Oh, you persuaded me. That's why I said I, I admire her gr- more at the end of the book, but I admire her jurisprudence less because of what she did vis-a-vis Justice Kennedy. I, I want to close this segment, Evan, by talking about, I think it was a Scalia comment. I'm, I'm doing this by memory. I have a colleague who is a legislator trained in the law, and, and I think that is Justice O'Connor. Yeah. Time and time again, for example, affirmative action can last 25 more years. That's just a legislator decision. That's yeah, not a constant. That's not pretty. No, it's not pretty. He just, she was a politician in judges' robes. He was serious about her. And, and that 25-year thing, that's, you know, constitutional scholars cringe when they read that. Yeah. But that, she was a, you know, she was a pragmatist. There is a judicial, there is a jurisprudential tradition of pragmatism. It actually starts with Oliver Wendell Holmes. But it's, it's not, it's, it, it's, lower courts don't like it. Judges don't get clear guidance. Uh, you know, you don't. It's 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 frustrating to litigants who don't really know what where the court stands because you know it's sort of case by. And case. the issue isn't closed. And the issue isn't closed. It's open. But I must say, you the key to first is you tell the whole story from both sides. And so when you come back for part three, and we talk about John O'Connor and the human side. I don't know how you can separate a life. There, there are so many love stories. You called it last time a great love story. There are so many love stories, not only John O'Connor and Sandra Day O'Connor, but with her boys, with her legislative colleagues, with the law, with her colleagues on the court. It's just a series of love stories. Yeah. With Clarence Thomas, interestingly, that, that, that's a very moving and affecting one to me. Uh, how he, he, he told me that she was the glue on the court. They, they are obviously philosophically miles apart. 
And she didn't love the whole Anita Hill thing, to put it mildly. But she understood that you got to work with people. Yeah, the glue on the court. Uh, Evan, congratulations, and I hope you're talking to me after the Post story comes out. I've been recommending it to everyone, lawyer and non-lawyer alike. I've been doing so in many different forums. And, Evan, I hope the book is uh, exceeding your expectations in terms of the audience you intended for it. Yeah, partly thanks to you. <laughs> you. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I, you know, it's a, it's a book for a lot of different kinds of people, lawyers, obviously, uh, but also, you know, young women, but pretty much anybody. There are lots of leadership lessons in it, and, and uh, it's, a, it's a very human story. So I, I, I think it is reaching a, a good audience, and, and again, uh, partly thanks to you. Well, I, uh, there are many people who have been praising it. I'm one of them. I am uh, particularly want to talk about this. The first interview we did was her early life up to the court. The second interview we did was her time on the court. Now I want to focus on Justice O'Connor and her husband, John, and uh, because I think, and I, I pointed this out in a piece I wrote for the Washington Post, um, anyone who's been touched by Alzheimer's, and my father-in-law had it, uh, finds here the most, I think, sympathetic, nuanced, but not maudlin treatment of someone with the disease and how Justice O'Connor kind of modeled how one ought to deal with it if it's possible to deal with it that way. Was that your conclusion at the end? Yes. I mean, as she would say, it's a terrible disease. Don't get it. Yeah. Because <laughs> no? uh, it is. Because it's only going in one direction. However... She was a very loving wife, and the, the good news about being a Supreme Court justice is that you can actually take your husband to work. She, her, John is in his decline. She would take him to her chambers at the Supreme Court. He would fall asleep on a bench in her office. She would have security guards sort of follow him around when he wandered. So she took care of him as long as she possibly could. But there gets to be a point where you just can't anymore. One of the symptoms of Alzheimer's can be not sleeping, uh, getting up in the middle of the night. And if he wasn't, they shared the same bed all, their, all through their marriage. And, and if, if, he, if he was getting up in the middle of the night, so was she. She's at the same time trying to decide 75 cases a year. That's, that's, and so finally she leaves us she, at the height of her power. When, she, when people are talking about it, the Supreme Court as the O'Connor Court, she resigns explicitly to take care of him. She said he sacrificed for me. When we first came to Washington, he gave up his big law career. Now I'm going to sacrifice for him. On page, Supreme Court. on page 356, you write, giving a tour of the court to some friends that year, Justice O'Connor, this is in 2003, Justice O'Connor pointed to a portrait of Chief Justice John Marshall and said, quote, he was my favorite justice, not because of his great opinion, she said, but because he went home every night to serve dinner to his sickly wife. Uh, one friend says she wouldn't ignore John O'Connor, but she wouldn't get bothered by him, even as he would cheerfully introduce himself to the guards again and again, and he could still dance. It's really a remarkable uh, uh, testament to how one, if you have the resources, this is not available to every American. I know there are a lot of families struggling with Alzheimer's out there and dementia. They don't have these resources, but if you have resources, this is the way to do it. Yeah. I mean, she, you know, she actually, her friends tried to get her to use more resources, really. Sharon Rockefeller, who's, who's, uh, what was it, her dad, I guess, uh, had Alzheimer's. Uh, said to her, you know, you you can get. And she said, No, I want to take care of. Him. And because she was such a tough cowgirl, you know, she. And one of the things that she was great about was she didn't get embarrassed. And so, if John was a little clueless at lunch, you know, she just she just barreled, barreled right ahead. She she cut his food when she had to. She she cared for him physically, but she 
allow herself to feel weird or awkward in when he was when he was in decline. She was loving. Yeah, you know, Evan, the, I want to underscore this, especially uh, in Easter week and Passover week. She refused to be embarrassed by the fact that life is hard. And, and uh, maybe she learned that on the ranch. She just was not going to be. And everyone who's out there in a difficult circumstances, it is what it is. You refuse to be hindered by you don't hide uh, from the world. Right. You just you just live your life. And that's really exemplified. How are her boys dealing with her illness? Well, I mean, same way. She's the model. They, they, for instance, uh, she's they, her daughter-in-law resisted putting her in memory care be, to keep her life going as long as possible. The, you know, I, I saw her two weeks ago, and yes, she's the polite way of putting it is she's in the moment. You know, she doesn't really remember anything, but the moment's not so bad if you if you have loving people around you and her. You know, she still recognizes her family, her her sons. Your three sons, your daughters-in-law, you know, she's still close to them, and they they provide. She's in an old folks' home, but she's but she's in the regular part of it, and uh, you know, they they're taking her model. Do the best you possibly can in a tough situation. Now, John, uh, I mean, Evan, uh, you have got so many fans out there. They want to know what you're working on next. One of my buddies, uh, Jerry, said, I hope he does a biography of Andrew Marshall, given your great man speech and all that kind of stuff. What are you working on next? Uh, I'm, I'm just starting a book about dropping the atomic bomb on Japan uh, because it, it was such an unbelievable moral dilemma for the people on, on, on all sides. So I'm interested in the Japanese side, too, why Hirohito did not surrender any sooner. But the people who actually built the bomb and dropped the bomb, what are they thinking? Why are they, what, what, how do they work through this impossible problem of fighting a battle against a foe that just will not give up no matter what? How far do you go? You know, at the beginning of World War II, we didn't target civilians. The British did bomb them at night, but we only ta- targeted military and industrial targets. Well, by the end of the war, we're firebombing cities. Well, what's that moral arc like? You know, Evan, you're going to find a people involved. You're going to find a lot of people like me are going to tell you you would not be talking to me, but for that, because my father was in the 46th Infantry Division, scheduled for the Northern Island faint. Yeah. Uh, that would not have gone well for the Americans. Yeah, no, mine too. Mine too. I was a, mine was a lieutenant on an LST. In the same scheduled in the same invasion, so that's how I'm beginning the book. <laughs> well, I'm, here, well, I'm here because of that. Talk. Exactly, and so it's not it, it, it's not something I say lightly. But a lot of Americans forget what Okinawa and Iwo Jima were like, and, exactly. and what yeah. the home islands would have been like had an invasion been required. So I guess Andrew Marshall's not on. The t- Did you ever meet Andrew Marshall? No, I know who you're talking about, but no, I did. I never did. Because of your first book, The Wise Men, uh, which you co-authored, uh, the the fact is that DC's down to a few of them. I saw one of them last week, Fred Fielding, but they're down to a few oh, yeah. of them. Uh, is yeah, that generation yeah, no. are they gone? I mean, is oh, there... I, 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 it feels that way to people like you and me who revere people like Andy Marshall and Bob Lovett and all that. But you know, I, human nature doesn't change. And we're going to have future crises. You know, the world will go to hell in the handbasket and worse than it is now. And you know what? Great men and women are going to come forward and save us. I, I believe that. It's, it's in the nature of our country. My last question. I told my law students, I don't know anyone who's going to be able to do a book like first Sandra Day O'Connor. I saw that Ruth Bader Ginsburg locked down her files until X years after her last living member of the court in which she served uh, has passed, and so that's like a hundred years from now. 
What's your recommendation to justices? I think that does not serve the public well. No, no. I think you know, Justice O'Connor's rule was if there was a member on the court. Now, so I got access to her files up to Clarence Thomas because he's still on the court. But I was able to see the 10 years before that, everything, you know, her handwritten notes at conference, all that. I think that's a reasonable rule. Not to lock it down forever, but to lock it down for a while. Well, because it's embarrassing if a sitting member of the court is having his own files exposed while he's still on the court. I think that is, I understand why you'd want to keep that. But once, once that person is off the court, I think the files should be, should be released. It's a balancing act. You know, we need, his, history needs to know how it really works inside there. At the same time, you do have to protect their privacy. Okay, I lied. I want one more question. Um, do you think someone should do a biography of Notre Dame? It seems to me that wow, it, it's a, a great idea. Yeah, great someone idea. should. It's 850 years old. It's a big biography, but yes. it, it, not a, a not a history idea. book, but a real biography of what it's about, because yeah. this is a, a yeah, moment. You can, do, you can do biographies of buildings and institutions. Absolutely. That's a brilliant idea. You should do it. No, 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 no. no. I'm not. That's that's. I, I do, know you, I, got, you have some big jobs. Now, I, Kevin, you're <laughs> running the Nixon library. Turn your head of the, yeah, the, the, the Nixon so Foundation. I, I just I just did one place. biography. I salute you because they're hard. I mean, you got to get it right. There's no. It's not a policy book where you can be wrong. You've got to get it right, right? You sure try. Yeah. I mean, you, you, as you know, you never get it totally right, but you can try. Evan Thomas, congratulations on first. We will put this all together in a podcast as well. First is available at Amazon.com and bookstores now. It's a New York Times bestseller. It's going to stay there for a long time. It's an inspiring, remarkable work. First, Sandra Day O'Connor by Evan Thomas. Thank you, Evan. Thanks, you. Thanks for listening to the Town Hall Review. Our program is coming today in partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. It's America's most unique graduate leadership programs offered on Pepperdine's breathtaking campus in Malibu, California. Learn more at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. If you're enjoying the podcast, please tell a friend to go to Town Hall Review and sign up as well today. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.